ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today's conversation includes content that might be upsetting. Please take care when listening. In Vietnam, the city of Hue is famed as a stately old royal capital. It lies on the banks of the Perfume River. And if you go there today, you can see on those banks three gigantic statues. There's a statue of a Vietnamese girl's head. There's a memorial to a legendary freedom fighter and a beautiful giant Buddha. All three statues were created by the father of Hung Lee, the Australian comedian. Hung Lee was born in Saigon, where his dad was one of Vietnam's most highly regarded artists. and They lived right next door to the presidential palace. When the war ended in 1975, Hung's family dropped everything and ran. Their escape from Saigon was utterly terrifying. The family came to Australia and Hung took up the violin. But soon he discovered he was far better at comedy. I first met him in the 1980s when he headed up the musical comedy group The Como String Quartet. A few years ago, Hung went back to Vietnam, to the banks of the Perfume River, to speak at an emotional commemoration of his father's beautiful sculptures. I spoke with Hung Lee at the Byron Writers' Festival back in 2019. Hung, you were born in Saigon, or Ho Chi Minh City as it's now called. When you try to get pictures in your head of the family home, in Saigon. What's there? Oh, we used to live like behind the presidential palace, right? Direct, directly behind Directly it. behind the presidential palace, which in the 70s in Saigon was really st- stupid place to live. <laughs> so, so we had this massive house and when you walk in, we have a lychee tree up the front and on the side is a massive statue of the Buddha that my, my father made. My father's a uh, Vietnam's most famous artist and Vietnam's youngest ever professor of, of fine arts. So the whole place, which is full of, of sculptures, and, yeah, that's, that's what I remember, yeah. And who was in the family home at the time, apart from oh, you, your mum and God. dad? We all live at home. Mum, dad, grandma, grandpa, four kids, um, a student, of, and everybody around Vietnam who wanted to crash... Could crash, yeah, yeah. Right next to the presidential bellows. Right next to the president. The, the Buddhist statue you had in your yard that your dad made, did monks, local uh, Buddhist monks, venerate this statue of the Buddha? Yeah, yeah. It was as big as the house. The thing was as big as the house. And we, we used to get Buddhist monks come, and as soon as they come, they would just drop on the ground, and they're just bowing. And then, you know, they bring all their shrimps and their beers and they would sit there with Dad and they just look at the Buddha and Mum would come out with, you know, some soy sauce and some chilli and they sit there and they eat their shrimps and they drink their beers and just look at the Buddha and that's what they did, hey. You know, just, that's what I grew up on. That sounds completely excellent, just oh, quietly. That's amazing. <laughs> I feel like doing that right now, actually, as well. <laughs> you said he was the most well-known artist in Vietnam. Was his art exhibited outside of Vietnam, elsewhere in the world? Yeah, he was supposed to go to Paris with another young girl 
from his school and go to go to Paris and and that could have been my I could have had a different mother you know and then the war broke out and she left she doesn't, went to Paris doesn't work that way hung you don't have a different mother it's just a you're a different <laughs> human altogether I think it's not you at all then you're not existing in this universe I'm afraid right I'll be speaking yeah. French to yeah. you now hey you wouldn't be speaking anything at all uh, <laughs> so um yeah yeah so that happened hey he went he went to war instead of going to Paris but anyway, so, you know, he met my mum. He was my mum's art teacher. He taught her how to paint and then they fell in love and, you know, and so here I am. Here you are. Yeah. It worked yeah, out yeah. after all. Yeah. Uh, how poor was your dad's upbringing? Well, uh, he, never, he never talked about his side of the family ever, right? And um, when he died, I, I, I found these letters and I went back to the Binyungs where they live and I found his, his family and they were so poor. They said, you know, they, 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 how he became an artist, they, they used to play in the river and make little boats and stuff like that out of mud. And that's when his art came along, you know. So at the end of art school, he was so poor, they, they wouldn't put, they wouldn't hang any of his paintings up because his family was in a general, his, you know, they weren't high up. They put all his paintings on the ground at the end of the end of school, and all these people turn up and they bought all his paintings that was on the ground. Nothing. They didn't bring any, buy anything that was hanging up. So he was that good. Was and he... just they were so poor. They were eating eels. His mum died when he was young. So yeah, yeah. So his dad brought him up, and yeah, they they were they were really poor people. Yeah. Was he a charismatic dude? My dad, he had this aura. You know, some people have an aura around them. He just attracts people. And I grew up watching this, you know. I've never seen a person be like this. And I would sit next to him all the time and he would tell stories. He would just tell furfies. He started me off telling furfies, you know. He would, ah, oh, we used to get all these boat people, you know, would come to the flat and they'd talk about boat people, you know, stories, you know, what happened and all this. And he would, he would sit there and he would tell the boat story that we went on like he was a swashbuckler. He'd tell people like he was like Errol Flynn, how good this boat trip was. And then he'd look at me and go, wasn't that right, Hung? I'm going, yeah, you were Errol Flynn, Dad, yeah, yeah. So he had that skill of telling a story when people would just transfix, you know, and I really wanted to be like him, you know, like that. You know, I've, I've met a few people like that. How about your mum? Your mum was deaf. Was she deaf from birth or she became no, deaf? She deaf was, what? yeah, my mum's deaf. She was dropped on the ground when she was a baby by somebody in the house. How, how would she communicate <laughs> then with you? What do you remember? She didn't learn to sign. How we communicate was that we stand in front of each other, pull faces and scream. <laughs> <laughs> and we still do it. The house, you know, when we talk, the house is so loud. And she, 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 because she can't hear you, you have to stand in front of her. You, she can't hear you from behind. So we, we just stand in front of each other and just scream and pull faces. And yeah, that's, that's how we do it, yeah. It's like going, what kind of movies would your mum and dad take you to see? Who were their movie heroes? My dad, he would take me to Charlie Chaplin movies. Every time a Charlie Chaplin movie came out, 
my dad would take me to Charlie Chaplin, all right, and my mum would take me to kung fu movies. Every time a Bruce Lee movie come out, you go to the theatre in, in Saigon, the place would be just chock a block. People would be hanging on off the roof to watch Bruce Lee, right? So Bruce Lee and Charlie Chaplin, that's what I grew up on. <laughs> Was the war present throughout all your early young life. Do you remember like soldiers in the streets, that kind of yeah. thing? Uh, yeah, I was born in 66, so the war was going, right? So next to our house was a massive um, block of flats of all soldiers. It was just soldiers, and that's all I remember. It's just soldiers and curfews and, 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 and barbed wire, and yeah, that's, that's, that's what I grew up on, yeah. That's all I knew, yeah. Tell me about the day when you were at home and you saw a plane go by over the right. presidential palace. Yeah, so this is was just a few months before Saigon fell. So we, me and my sister, we used to do uh, Taekwondo, right? And the, the Taekwondo teacher, she would read monkey, you know, monkey magic, that story. So... Yeah, after Taekwondo, we would sit there and she would teach us about what monkey meant, right? And all the stories of Buddhism and all of that. Yeah, that, that's part of Taekwondo, right? So we sit there, you know, well, whites and everything. And we see learning about monkey. And I see this plane fly past. Drops a bomb. We see this bomb drops, right, into the presidential palace. The plane flies off and you go, oh. What happened next? So we look up. You couldn't hear anything, and this mushroom cloud came up. And they taught us this. You know, they, we, we were taught what to do when, when bombs fall. Jump under the table. So we jumped under the table, couldn't hear anything, and all of a sudden this force just smashes all the windows in, right? Blew the head off the Buddha. So we just, we just ran into this bombshell, and that's, that's what we did all the time. We just, things were blowing up all the time at that time in 1975. We'd be lying in bed, and this is, something would just blow up, and we'd just run into the car, and Dad would turn the car on, and we would sit there in the dark, just waiting for the house to be hit, right? Because the vehicles are just... That, that's when all the missiles were coming in. And we'd just wait for the house to be hit, and we'd sit there, the sun would come up, the house not hit, turn the thing off, we all go to school, everyone went on with their lives. So that happened all the time, yeah, just waiting for the house to be hit. So 29th of April, 1975, what do you remember of that day? 29th of April, yeah, it was a beautiful day, you know, it was a normal day, we were out. Mum was, you know, putting the clothes on the line and stuff. So the whole day was normal, normal, and all of a sudden there was a calm, right? And the clothes are still wet. And then the phone rings. My dad picks up the phone. He's one of his friends. Because my dad, they, they thought about getting a boat to leave, but the communists came in so quickly that... That whole thing just went down the toilet, that, that idea, right? So the phone rang, and my dad's mate goes, mate, you've got to go. The communists are here. The tanks are rolling in. You know the, the picture of the, the, the tanks rolling into the, the presidential... That was across the road, right? And that was the next day. So the tanks were coming in, 
So, you know, we packed up, we packed the bags and um, uh, my, uh, my grandmother rang her sister and said, time to go. My, her sister said, no, I'm staying. And my grandfather said, oh, I'm staying. And everyone's going, oh, all stubborn and shit. And she said, no, there's no staying. There's no staying, right? So we packed everything, put everyone in the car. The Americans all left, right? Three years before, they all left, right? So there's one soldier standing there by himself, trying to steal, trying to hold on to the, and we just drive, like, look, get out of the way, man. The whole thing's gone down. We locked the gate, left the dog in the house. The dog was screaming, right? The dog was, the dog knew what was going on, right? So we drove down to um, Saigon River and left the, left the car running, left the doors open, and it was just, Thousands of people everywhere. Just, it was just chaos, just running. We didn't know, no one knew what to do. And it's just like every boat in Saigon came to the river, right? Just parked next to each other and just picked up people and just left. You just fill up the boat and leave, fill up a boat and leave, fill up a boat and leave. And no one knew whether the police didn't know what to do. It was just total chaos. Yeah. I've just been reading a book that talks about how after the war, there were people in Europe who just never could, un could be understood by people in America or even in this country, who, people who don't know what it's like to wake up one day and have to drop everything and go, and just go, go now. And then on your way out, you see a house split open and you see a bathtub exposed or something like that. And you have that, you have that day. There are those people who've had that experience and there are those who haven't. I had grandparents who their whole life was in Vietnam and dad, you know, he, he was at the peak of his career. He was 35 years old, you know, he was at the peak of his career and we just had one suitcase. That was it. We had one suitcase of, you know, birth certificates and that's it, right? And, and, and just leaving everything. So just imagine that, leaving everything you know. Yeah. So what happened once you got on this boat? So um, there was all these tiny little boats and there's one tanker, oh, no, like it, was an, it was a flat tanker, right? So my, my dad's friend said, you get on that one, the big one, right? So we climbed on all these boats to get onto this one. Man, I nearly died the, first, the very first boat I jumped on. So we had to climb on this boat and jump on the big one. I put my hand on, the, on, on one boat and my feet were on it and this wave hit and the bo two boats had spread like that, right? And I thought, this is it. I haven't done anything, haven't left the country, it nearly died, right? And I go, oh, how bad am I, right? So yeah, for some reason, the two boats came back and I just jumped over. That's why I'm like six foot tall. I think that's just... <laughs> <laughs> and um, yes, it was a massive boat. And uh, there was nowhere to stay. It was just flatness, right? People were just... We had, we, we, we had a suitcase, a box of biscuits and some seasick pills, and that's all we had. And as soon as we got on the ship, my uh, grandmother, she was just giving biscuits away to little kids, gave all the seasick pills, we gave everything away. And we left, and it's the same day, it was the same day, you know, when the Americans had a helicopter and they picked up all those people from the American embassy. On the rooftop. There. On the yeah, rooftop, the last, right. The last helicopter to leave Saigon. Right. Yeah. That was exactly the same day. 
And so they were taking them out to the, the Seventh Fleet, the American fleet were waiting for these people, for, for the Americans and everyone who worked for the Americans to come out. And that was the same day as we left. Instead of the helicopter, we left by boat, right? So they waited for us as well. And when, when we left, the, 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 the airport was on fire and we left and we looked back and the sun was going down and everything, the Saigon was on fire. Right, so um, you can see that from the boat, could you? We can see it yeah. just driving away, just you know, going away. Everything was on fire, right? And there was all these tiny little fishing boats, right? In Vietnam, they, they were like river boats. They're not made for for the sea, right? And this storm hit, right? This massive storm hit. You can see these boats go up and they go down, and you go, they're dead. These people were dead. And then all of a sudden they come up again, you go, oh my God. And so it just shows how fragile your life is. And this, my, you know, my dad's friend, he said, your life was like a cigarette paper in the rain. One drop of rain on the cigarette paper and it'll bend. And you, that's, that was it. That's that, that how he thought. We, 100% we were going to die, really. Nobody knew that we were going to survive this. Yeah. Do you know how long you were out on the open sea for? Hours, days? Do you know, can you days, remember? yeah, yeah. We left and um, massive storm hit. And so everybody, we had nothing. Men were holding out sheets to protect it, you know, from, from the The rain was coming sideways, right? And as, as soon as we see another ship, everyone was writing SOS on these sheets, and we, everyone was just holding up SOS, and, um, and then the boat ran out of fuel. And then so the, the, the captain of the boat, he, he, he left. He left us. He got off and got on another little boat, and, he, and then he just buggered off, right? And so we're just floating. We're just floating, floating, floating. And then we came to what's called, it was like an a intersection of barges. In Vietnam, they used to have these barges to carry ammunition. And so these barges were made so people cannot jump on them to get it to the ammunition. And these barges had fences of sandbags all around them so people can't shoot into them, right? And they were made so you cannot jump on them. So there was this intersection of barges. So we had to jump on these barges, right? And just, yeah, just go in there and just, these barges just full of people. And so um, we were pulled along by a little tiny Navy boat and that ran out of fuel. And so we were just floating. You couldn't see the sides because of the fences. All you see was, was, was the sky and, and the sun, and it was heat. And the place was so packed. I was sleeping on the, the suitcase that we had standing up. I was sleeping on that. And we had no food. There was no water. There was no karaoke. Nothing, right? Just... <laughs> and the most... Amazing thing we saw, we were standing around and all these, all the old people, all these old people, they sat around in this circle and they were peeing into a polystyrene cup and they were sharing it and people were drinking each other's piss, right? And as a kid, you know, people just standing and watching this, right? going, oh my God, this is what it's come to, people drinking their own piss. And that's, 
that's 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 the will to live. That's that's what people talk about. You know, that's why refugees will never stop, because the will to live is so much stronger than anything. That's what I saw. You know, the will of people to be alive. So how were you picked up? The American Navy, they came. They came up to the next to the barge and they put this platform next to their big ship and the platform and us. And so everyone ran up to this one fence where, where, where the Americans were and they came down, they were standing there throwing up canteens of water, right? We hadn't drank anything for days, right? They're throwing up canteens of water. So me and my grandma, my grandmother, let's go on this fence and grab some water. So me and my grandmother, we couldn't catch anything. So we, so we got off. As soon as we got off, the whole thing collapsed and killed all these people underneath. And the Americans freaked out. The Americans freaked out. They, could, they weren't in control of any of this, right? So they, we, they, they said, let's go. We've got to go. We've got to go. This is too weird now. So they started packing up, right? We thought, oh, man, they're leaving us again. That's what the people thought, right? They're leaving us again, right? So this woman... She grabbed her baby and she put on a backpack and she grabbed her baby and she ran up on this broken fence and she jumped. When she jumped, the platform, the wave hit and the platform parted from the barge and you could, we couldn't see this, but you could hear it. You could hear a plop in the water and then the barge came back and you could hear two crunches, like it was like two coconuts getting crunched. So it was like her and her baby just getting crunched in the water like this. And the Americans freaked out. And they just they left for the night, and they to just work out what Plan B was, right? So they left. And we go, oh my God! Now they left us again. And so they left us for the night. And then next morning they came back with these rubber duckies. They go, okay, let's do it this way. Get everyone into little rubber duckies and then go into the, the, the aircraft carrier. So we jumped in these rubber duckies and this one guy, and my grandmother saw a, a, a canteen of water. She's going, go and get that for me. I go grab it. This dude, this American soldier, he swung his machine gun around and pointed right at my face because the Americans are freaking out as well. They didn't know who to trust. We didn't know who to trust, right? So he's just pointing his machine gun right at my face. So I'm going, oh, man, it's too late now. I just grabbed a canteen of water, gave it to my grandmother, and we then they, they took us to um, their battleship. And the battleship opened like a whale. So we're just like going into a whale's mouth and it would close like this, right? So we were there, we were in, inside this battleship for days and they were on their way to the Philippines, right? So, so we're all sitting on the floor. We're all sitting on the floor of this battleship and they used to feed us congee. You know congee? It's like, Viet, you know, like Asian porridge, mm. porridge right? Because mm. they didn't know what to feed us. And we hadn't eaten anything for so long, we couldn't keep anything down. So they had like cauldrons of porridge and we would line up every day and put it in a styro polystyrene cup. And if you got a sausage in your porridge, you, you know, it was, a, it was a good day, right? <laughs> so I was sitting there and this family next to us, I'm saying, I'm smelling, what's this smell? The dude had a packet of two-minute noodles 
And some reason, somehow he got some hot water, right? And he's cooking the two-minute noodles and he's eating two-minute noodles. I'm smelling this and I'm looking at him and I'm drooling, right? And this man eating his two-minute noodles. So my dad saw this. So he got out a piece of paper and a pencil. He started drawing, sketching what he saw, right? Just around him, sketching all this. Gave the dude the picture and a dude gave me the source of his two-minute noodles and that was the most amazing thing I've ever tasted in my whole life and I'm just addicted <laughs> to, to getting that taste back. I've, I cannot get that taste back. I go around the world and I've tried so much noodles around the world. You're not joking either. You're not joking, are you? I'm not You're absolutely joking. serious. This is yeah. absolutely true. Noodles are a real touchstone for you for something, aren't they? What is yeah. that? Survival? What do noodles really mean? I mean, there's the well, taste of it, but is it life or what? It's life. It, 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 it brought me back to life. This, this man's soup, you know. Yeah. Like we were just eating congee. Got off the boat and they put in a single file heading towards a food tent. They had a food tent there. Guess what we got? Noodles or congee? A cheeseburger and a Pepsi. <laughs> right? The place was chock-a-block of cheeseburger, right? And they go, yeah, welcome to America. Like this, right? it was cheeseburger and a Pepsi. So we were there for one night and they flew into Guam. Guam was another American base. And so they started making refugee camps. They only just started, you know, because, you know, this is brand new, right? So we got there, you know, the first thing, it was tents, it was massive tents, and uh, they hadn't really put any toilets or any electricity or anything, right? So we were there, and there was no electricity, you know, like three or four families in each tent. And that night, they went around and they delivered pizza to every tent. We never had pizza before, right? <laughs> what, did you, what did the family think of pizza? So my grandmother said, oh, all right, I'll take one for the team. Because I'll taste the first one. I'll taste the first one. And because we, we couldn't trust anybody. Nobody was trusting anybody at that time, right? And uh, she took a bite of pizza and, and she chucks it on the ground. She's going, oh, this is off. This is off. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Because it was sour. The sour taste was tomato paste. And we never had tomato paste before. She's going, oh, it's off. Oh, chuck it out. <laughs> Chuck it out, you look out the tent, and every tent had all these pieces chucked out. It's a starving, <laughs> starving Vietnamese people just chucking out, going, oh, Americans trying to poison us, Americans trying to poison us, right? So, uh, yeah, it was true, man. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So up from tents, where, from, where, where after that? Some tents, and then they built the next one. We had beds, we had, we had bunks, had bunk beds, and then I started to work. I was nine years old. I said, oh, I'm going to get a job at these refugee camps and cleaning out the, um, the rice cooker. They had these rice cookers that were so big that you had to wind them down. You had to wind them down and had to crawl inside to clean 
or, or the rice out, right? You were cleaning a rice cooker from the inside? From the inside. Right. <laughs> it's that big, man. Wow. But when you cook rice in a pot, the best bit of the rice is the crunchy bits. And, and I, that was the best bit, right? I was just, I would, we were walking around the refugee camps with a bit of crunchy rice and butter on it. And I was the king of the <laughs> refugee camp. And so uh, that from there, we went to another camp. And, you know, for me, it was fun. It was an adventure. It wasn't, you know, I didn't know any better. I was a nine-year-old boy. Right? I, was, I loved it. We learned how to fish. You know, I learned how to play Chinese checkers and all this sort of stuff. And each camp got better. And the very last camp was a five-star hotel before they let us go. So when, when we got to Guam, they said, anybody can go to America. You can, you can go to America right now if you wanted to, right? But my mum's brother was at RMIT in Melbourne as a student. Before the war, he was a student, right? My uncle used to send us presents from Australia, like, you know, kangaroo T-shirts. And so, well, let's go to that place. How bad can it be? How bad can it be, right? It's kangaroo T-shirts, right? <laughs> And so we are, oh, let's go to, let's go to Australia, hey. And what were your expectations of Australia, having agreed to, to go there? We had no idea what Australia was. Right. We had, we, we had no idea. We thought it was hot. We got to Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's funny already, isn't it? There you are. In August. <laughs> right? In the middle of winter. And freezing to death. Right, it's freezing to death. We go, what have we done? Where are we? So, yeah. So, tell me about the cornflake sandwiches your mum learnt to make, having moved to Melbourne. Well, we didn't know what to eat. 1975, you know, in Melbourne, we didn't do you know, There's no Vietnamese grocery shops, right? So, we went to the supermarket, right? And we'd never been in a supermarket before. So my mum, me and my mum went to the supermarket. First they came back, supermarket, came back with a box of cornflakes. Because there's a giant chicken on the front of it. It's what? got a chicken on it, right? <laughs> so my mum thought it was, oh, it's chicken flakes, right? <laughs> so my dad ate cornflake sandwiches for 15 years. <laughs> She get a piece of, she go, oh, she's very smart, my mum. She go, oh, I, 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 yeah, I got it, I got it. She go, I got it. I work it out. She works it out, right? She get a piece of bread, put some margarine on it, put some cornflake on it, <laughs> some soy sauce, <laughs> and send us off to school. <laughs> Mate, the wogs were laughing at us. My dad ate cornflake sandwiches for 15 years. He had no idea, right? you know. So one day I, I said to him, I sat him down, I said, Dad, listen, with cornflakes, you have to put it in a bowl and put Fanta in it, right? So um, <laughs> he didn't know. So your dad, your dad got work in a Toyota plant. Uh, he'd been this celebrated artist in Vietnam. Did he mind? Did he, did he hate it? What, how, how was he getting on? He never said anything. Hey, you know, oh. the, the, all he said, well, you know, you have to do what you have to do. You know, you have to do what you have to do. You have kids, you have to feed them. Him and granddad went to the Toyota factory, spray painting cars. And it was work of a kind, I suppose. But yeah. was he still creating art after hours, though? Yeah, he was, man, he had an exhibition within a year landing in Melbourne in Germany. 
That's how hardcore my dad is. In Germany, you know, he didn't even go. You know, he sent all his paintings to Germany, right? So, you know, that's how hardcore my dad was. So he didn't care. He worked on the trams and, you know, worked on the buses, a tram conductor and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. How about your mum? What kind of work did your mum get? My mum, yeah, she couldn't really, yeah, she, she was ironing. So she worked in factories where they, they make clothes and she would iron for them and they treated her really bad and she couldn't hear anything and people treated her really bad. So we started our own um, factory. <laughs> yeah, we had our own sweatshop at home, right? So people would, you know, we would cut, cut stuff and every kid had a thing to do and mum would sew everything we cut and we, with all this left behind stuff, we would make our own wind cheaters, right? But so we would, but they'd all be different colours. We would walk to school like that with different panels. It's like a. <laughs> so what were you at school? Were you a, you would have been one of the very first wave of Asian migrants post white Australia policy to Australia. What was your reception like? They didn't know. We were the very first Vietnamese people, boat people here. Really, people didn't really know how to treat us. This is before all the Vietnamese came in the 80s, right? So none of them were scared of us or anything. So the Greeks, they decided to take me under their wing. So I learned how to speak Greek before I learned how to speak English, all right? And I uh, signor me. Any Greek people here? Yeah. Signor me was the first word I learned. I go, what does that mean? They go, oh, I'm sorry. I go, why am I learning? Why am I? They're gonna, they go, you're going to be sorry. You know this, right? <laughs> So the Greeks, I would walk to school with, with the Greeks. You know, we all lived, you know, together. We'd all walk to St Kilda Primary School. And uh, we'd go past the milk bar and the Greeks, they'd go, go in the milk bar and ask for 20 cents with the pustis and 20 cents with the malakas, right? So that means 20 cents with the puftis and 20 cents with the wankers. Isn't that right? Right? So I didn't know, right? I go in the milk bar, I got 20 cents of the boosties and 20 cents of malakas. <laughs> and the Greek dude behind the counter, he would he jump the counter and he'd take off his, you know those sandals that the Greeks wear, the really, the, the, the tan sandals? And he would whack me, he whacked me out of the milk bar, right? And all, I get out there and all the Greeks, they're all on the ground, they're laughing their heads, so they're laughing their heads, they thought it was hilarious, right? And I'm going, mm -hmm. one day, I haven't got them back for it yet. How, how were you assigned a footy team? So the first day of school, right? First day of St. Kilda Primary School, little blonde kid came up with a whole stack of Planet of the Ape cards. Remember Planet of the Ape cards, right? He'd come up to me, little blonde kid, I knew three words of English. Table, chair, and bathroom. That's what they taught us on the boat. But they taught us that, the American soldiers, eh? So the kid comes up and goes, who do you bake for? I go, what? Who do you bake for? I go, table, chair, and bathroom. <laughs> he goes, now you're back for Carlton. And so I've been back for Carlton ever since. <laughs> Whose idea was it for you to take up music and play the violin? That was Dad's idea. Dad, he was so highbrow, my dad, right? You know, he's an artist, right? So he thought, you're in a white man's country. How to get respect from the white man is you do the white man music. Classical music will get you into the white man's life, right? So he made us, yeah, play the violin and the piano. So, you know, me and my brother played the violin and 
my little sister played the piano and my big sister played the cello, right? We had a, like a string quartet at home. And so we had to learn how to play white man's music. And it's, it, it, it was fantastic because that's how you get into society, right? Was it right? Was it, did it work like that? It got me white girlfriends. Wow. <laughs> because, you know, I was, you know, I picked up the violin and I was, I was uh, a natural. I looked like a natural. <laughs> I faked my whole career. Richard, I faked the whole thing, right? I look like I can play. You know, I wasn't so bad. I wasn't so bad. But, you know, I look like I can play. And as soon as I played, oh, they put me at the front of the orchestra. So I'm leading the orchestra by the time I was 14, right? And all the young girls so I want to sit next to Hung Lee, you know, sit up the front of the orchestra. But the thing is that I play violin. I can't play it in tune. I'm just that tiny little bit sharp. <laughs> And because it's true that men hear music sharper than women hear music for some reason. And that's how I played. And it's just annoying to people. I would play in orchestras, you know, our whole life is playing orchestras, right? And everyone's going, who, what is that? Who is, this is me, just looks a tiny little bit out of tune, right? I go, oh my God. So about 15 years old, me and my mate, we, uh, we took our violins out in the little Burke Street in, um, the Maya windows. So every, every Christmas, Maya put on a Christmas windows, right? So me and, me and this dude, we came out, we started playing the violin, playing Christmas carols, you know? The pe people thought it was hilarious. People just gave us so much money. In the 80s, people had so much money because they thought it was hilarious because they'd never seen an Asian play out of tune before, right? <laughs> it was comedy, right? I didn't know. And I was just playing Christmas carols. And that's when I started the, the comedy stuff with, with classical music because there was so much money. We, would, we were 15 years old and we were buying bottles of scotch <laughs> with one cent pieces. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we would go to Mietta's, right? You know Mietta's? You know, that was a, the most highbrow bar. bar. Yeah, it was beautiful. In yeah. Melbourne. Yeah the most highbrow, we would turn up with bags of coins and we'd just buy the most expensive scotch just with one cent pieces. At this point, our lives start to intersect a bit here. Uh, and funnily enough, my comedy life as it was came from busking as well, but in Canberra. Yes, right. and, and there was a music group that realised we got a lot more money once we started trying to make people laugh and things developed from there. So you formed the Commerce String Quartet. It was. It was true, man. When we saw you guys, we, you know, in 1987 uh, busking competition, when you came what, third... third. And you came second. second. <laughs> we didn't win at all, no. man. Yeah, it's only, yeah, this, this brass band, 14-year-old brass band won the whole thing. And then we went to the pub afterwards. We drank for hours. We drank. For, and then that's when you, you said to us, you said to us, man, you guys have got to go to Edinburgh. This, what you have, you've got to go to Edinburgh. So I dropped out of uni. We all dropped out of uni. You know, packed our bags and just left. Just, we just left because Richard Filer told us <laughs> to go to Europe, right? I, I and have, we did. I have this mesmeric power over Hung Lee, and um, <laughs> I'm going to ask him to give me all his money after, after we, <laughs> we finish know, it today. Yeah, right. With that, you played all over the world. Took up stand-up on your own as well. And um, I'm just really struck by reading your memoir, Hung, how, what a true bohemian you are. Like, you go to Kenya or yeah. Peru or 
God help us, Los Angeles, with uh, no money in your pockets and not knowing anyone when you get to the airport. What's your What's your theory of travel here, please? I'm a boat person with travel bug, mate. <laughs> <laughs> What's your ideal way to travel? My ideal way to travel in the 80s and the 90s, I would turn up with no money, with nothing, and nowhere to stay, nowhere to live, not even think about anywhere, just land somewhere, because that's where the stories are. You know, I'm all into stories, you know. My friends live through me. My friends are all married with children, blah, blah, blah. And they all live through, what did you do? Oh, I just landed. And, yeah, what did you do? No, I don't know, man. Because from the airport to where you're going, that's a massive story when you got no money, you didn't know anybody, right? And it's, that's when, you know, now you turn up and, you know, you ring your head and there's a dude with a sign with your name on it and they take you to a five-star hotel. There's no story there. Just finally, your father left these beautiful, gigantic statues behind in Vietnam. What became of those statues? So before he passed away, he sent a letter back to his mates and he said, look, I've got this statue of a Vietnamese girl. I want to give it to the country. The reason we left, because because he couldn't do his art anymore, you know, he couldn't express himself. That's the reason we left. But now, after all these years, the government putting all his artwork out for the people in Hue. If you ever be, if you ever go to Hue along the Perfume River, my dad's got like three most amazing statues that you've ever seen. Nobody, no artist in the world has three massive statues. This all happened just at the point he was dying. He was, it was dying, his kind yeah. of his dying wish that this should happen and it, it was, was his achieved. dying wish that he, he wanted to give all his artwork to the country and he sent a letter to his mates and they did it. It took him 10 years but they got all his stuff out there. It was an amazing thing. You were invited to a, the commemoration yeah. after your father died in 2012 yeah. to make a speech. What was that day like for you, Hung? Oh man, it was amazing. Hey? They got the best location in Huey. They, they were going to put Ho Chi Minh there but my dad had one of Phan Boi Chow, who was another Vietnamese hero. And they put it, of Ho Chi Minh, they put my dad's thing there. I was going, yes. And so, yeah, I opened the whole thing. It's good to see. How moved are local people that you came back for your father to commemorate your father's work? Yeah, people. all his friends, man, all his friends. People would cry. I, I, I would go in the street, right? They eat, eat noodles when I was there. I talked to the guy who owned the restaurant. I said, well, what, he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, my father's the one who, who makes this statue, right? These people were crying because they just love my father so much and they love his statue so much. It really affects the people who lived in that area, yeah. Are you happiest now being, when, you're, when you do go to Vietnam, do you feel very at ease and, at, and comfortable there now that you've sort of made touch with the old family and everything else or do you still feel a bit torn i feel i can't speak the language well enough to have deep conversations because i only left when i was nine and couldn't learn i couldn't learn the language in australia no one taught vietnamese and vietnamese is such a hard language but it was great to go back and find people that I left, we left behind to find my dad's brother. And every year I come back, there's a new little cousin. I've got little cousins everywhere. And they're fat and they've got round heads <laughs> and they, they all look like me. 
And that's, that was a great thing about it, you know. And, and Vietnamese, you know, my family, they don't mind if you can't speak the language. We just eat together. You know, it's great to go back to find where you're supposed to be from. Because, you know, I feel like, Australia, I'm not really from here, but over there I don't feel like I'm really from there. And, and yeah, I, I look Western. I don't look like my own people. I'm still trying to find where I'm from, really. Really, is where I feel at home. It's been so lovely speaking with you. What an amazing story. Ladies and gentlemen, Hung Lee. Thank you so much. Thank you. I recorded that conversation with Hung Lee at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. Hung Lee now has a memoir out with the provocative title of The Crappiest Refugee. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hey, Miyuki Okiranta here. I'm the host of the Earshot podcast, where we tell intimate stories full of heart. And our latest is about a box of ashes. He's now here with me, sitting in his little box, and I'm just just debating whether I've done the right thing. Julie hadn't seen her mate Laurie for 10 years. It had been complicated between them. But after he died, nobody else wanted his ashes. It feels like such a huge responsibility now that I've got him. Regret, remorse, love. What does someone's ashes mean to us? Follow Julie as she finds out what happened to the charismatic Laurie. He had five years of chaos. He basically spent five years trying to create peace and order and got it. And then boom. And she finds a unique way to remember Laurie through his ashes. That's the Earshot Podcast on the ABC Listen app.